chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Then he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignantly, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches." And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all this morning. And if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know who I am, let me introduce myself. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, more about our church, though, please, oh, please. I know I need to get right into the sermon, especially since we have the kids in here, but I just can't help myself but say um, I'm really excited about the announcement we just made. Um, but it's also, it's an exciting and, and a bittersweet time for us, and something I know Dan wouldn't say, but I know I can speak for us pastors, is um, I, I was just a pit. I just got out of the pit. I'm thankful for those of you that came and encouraged me uh, about my calling. Um, so I would encourage you, please do the same for Josh. It means more to him than he would tell you, and even for you to come to him with concerns. But brothers and sisters, it's also a good time over the next two and a half months to tell Pastor Dan how much he's meant to you. If you've been here for 17 years, if you've been here for five years, if you've been here for two years, l- let's tell him how much he's meant to us, how happy we are to have called him friend and older brother and shepherd. And, and praise God, he's not, God hasn't called him to Bangladesh. He's still, we're going to get to see him here and continue to worship with him. So um, that's all. Let me, let's ask God for, for help, and then we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you for another day. 
uh, today that you've made. We rejoice. We're glad in it. We thank you that your mercies are new this morning. The gospel is true this morning. Lord, you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. And we praise you for that. We thank you for granting us the gift of faith and repentance. And uh, Lord, our lives are yours. And we we rejoice that uh, you don't look to us for perfect external religion, but hearts of repentance, hearts that have been changed by you, that, that seek to love you, though imperfectly, and love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray that you would... Um, Use me this morning to speak your word rightly and truthfully, rightly handle your word, and uh, you would cause your people to, to see you more, to see their need for the daily repentance, and pray that you would draw lost sheep to yourself this morning through your word. We, we love you and praise you and declare you are worthy of all of our lives and our praise and glory and worship, and we pray in the name of King Jesus, amen. A little over 10 years ago, within the Christian subculture, a YouTube video went completely viral. If you don't know what that means, I know most of you know what it means, but it means this YouTube video spread like a virus. Everyone was watching it, at least in our Christian subculture. Um, It's a poem that describes the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. Uh, It's called, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. It struck a powerful chord in our culture. I I hope it reached a lot of unbelievers, but I'm not sure it was right about the time that God was drawing me to himself when I heard this poem, and it really had an impact on me. And I looked it up yesterday, and it currently has 35 million views right now. In the case of the poem, and as it often is in our culture, the word religion is used negatively. Um, It could be defined, I could have looked it up, but this is just my definition of the negative view of religion. It's... um, a man-made way to relate to God based only on external obedience. Uh, I'll read you a few of the stanzas from the poem. He says, because the problem with religion is that it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Let's dress up on the outside, make things look nice and neat. It's funny what they do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. He goes on to say, religion preaches grace, but another thing they practice tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. Can't fix their problems, so they try to mask it, not realizing that's just like spraying perfume on a casket. There are finally and ultimately two ways to live, two kingdoms to be a part of, God's kingdom or the kingdom of man, the kingdom of relationship through repentance or the kingdom of religion. God's word says you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. A really helpful illustration I heard a few years ago was you can have two bus drivers. Your bus driver is either Adam and the destination is hell or your bus driver is Christ and the destination is heaven. And the struggle though for us as Christians is that we easily fall back into that religious paradigm. We fall back into thinking that what's most important is our external religious duties without a humble heart of repentance. And that if we're doing good in our religion, God should bless our external circumstances. And if we or someone else is doing bad in our religion, God will punish us in our external circumstances. 
And that's not just unique to our time. The Jews of the first century and before were constantly wrongly believing that God was merely seeking external religion. And, and they believed that they could be justified by their obedience to the law and that their external circumstances were evidence of their obedience, whether it was good or bad. And it really was and is prosperity theology. Be good and do good and God will make good things happen to you. It's a formula. Be bad and do bad and God will make bad things happen to you. That's basically what's discussed in the book of Job. It's one of my favorite books. I'm reading it right now. Job's friends, all this horrible suffering, if you ever read Job, all this horrible suffering comes upon him. And Job's friends come to him and tell him, you must have done something sinful to have all this suffering brought upon you. And even though Job was a sinner, all of that suffering was brought upon him actually because in general, he was an upright man. That's what the first few chapters say. He feared the Lord and turned away from evil. And God sicked Satan on him. He said, I'll prove to you that Job is my guy. Go mess with him. And let's not forget the most important lesson. In the life of Christ, he was perfect. He was sinless. Yet he was rejected, homeless, tortured, and hung on a Roman cross. So Christ, Christ was good. He was perfect. And bad things happened to him. Job was pretty good. Still sinful, but pretty good. And bad things happened to him. And we, Humanity, we're, we're bad, we're sinful, and yet good and bad things happen to us. So it's not as simple as the religious equation makes it seem. And that's what we'll see in the text this morning. Before we dive in, let me remind you a little bit of where we've been. We took three weeks off for that uh, little sermon series. So uh, I've said this before, I'll just remind you again briefly. From chapter 951 through chapter 1944, Jesus is on his Jerusalem journey. And one commentator calls this section Jewish Rejection and the New Way. The thrust of this section is that Jesus gives a new way to follow God, which is not the way of Jewish leadership. In light of our series title, we could say Jesus is bringing the upside-down kingdom, and it's going to clash with the right-side-up kingdom of the Jews. Or we could say the religious kingdom of the Jews. There has been and there will be great opposition in this section between Jesus and the leaders of Israel. In the previous sermons in Luke, just a few, Jesus is, is speaking about how what a person does with him is what differentiates people. There, remember, there were two kinds of people, two kinds of holiness, two kinds of fears. And most recently in chapter 12, Jesus called his followers always to be ready for his return. There were two kinds of servants. Remember, ready servants and not ready servants. He ended that section in chapter 12 that everyone should agree to God's plea bargain before they meet God face to face, which is forgiveness, justification, adoption through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. There will be those who agree to that plea bargain and those who don't agree to that plea bargain. So the passage this morning continues that theme. There are two kingdoms, as I said, the kingdom of man-made religion and the kingdom of God, which is entered through repentance and continues in repentance. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. The upside-down kingdom of God is a kingdom of repentance, not a kingdom of religion. And the way I've uh, structured the sermon this morning is first the necessity of repentance. We'll see that in verses 1 through 5. 
And then we'll see Israel's lack of repentance. We'll see a parable and a point proven. This is the parable of the fig tree and the healing account. And then third, we'll see despite Israel's lack of repentance, the kingdom will continue to grow in that last paragraph. So first, let's look at the necessity of repentance, verses 1 through 5. So, so we heard it read, some people come to Jesus and tell him some horrible things that happened to some Galileans. The first is that Pilate had killed some Jews and mixed their blood with their sacrifices. Most likely this incident happened on Passover because that was the only time the lay people could do their own sacrifices. Besides that, the priest, the high priest, were doing all the sacrifices. And the second is when a tower, the Tower of Siloam, fell and killed 18 people. And the belief is that, as I've said, the, this religious worldview, that the Galileans must have had some huge and hidden sin that God was punishing them for. They weren't religious enough. And that suffering in this life was always evidence of the destiny of one's soul. So they, they must have been like headed to hell, and God proved it by doing these things. Jesus implies this with his questions. He says, do you think they were worse sinners than the other Galileans? Or a little bit later, he says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? This would be a common opinion given the cursings that come for disobedience in the Old Testament. A well-known example of this kind of thinking comes from John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking past a guy blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Someone wasn't religious enough, right? And Jesus says, neither. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus corrects their improper thinking, and he re reiterates the point in verse 3 and 5. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Tragedy and suffering in this life are reminders of the worse and eternal suffering for those who don't repent. You will be able to tell if you're visiting with us this morning that we're not what we people call a seeker-focused church. Uh, we as pastors and guest preachers here are always going to preach the word of God. And I know this might be hard to hear for some of you, but we love you enough, I love you enough for you to hear this. Jesus tells his audience, don't think you're eternally safe because these tragedies didn't happen to you. Don't think you're immune from suffering because you aren't experiencing it now. One says it like this, those who see others perish in calamities in this world should not draw the conclusion that they are better than those who perished, that those who perish in such a way are particularly evil Instead, they must understand that they too will suffer a far greater fate, an eternal punishment if they do not repent of their sin. These tragedies are powerful reminders that we live in a fallen and sinful world. And we shouldn't think that God is necessarily happy with our religion if life is easy and comfortable. There are many unrepentant sinners who live very easy, comfortable lives, and there are very many repentant, forgiven sinners who live hard, difficult lives. God isn't seeking from us a great religious performance because apart from Christ, we can't perform well. God is seeking a great repentance from his people. We can think of tragedies of our day. In my lifetime, I, I thought of 9-11. I was in eighth grade. I'll never forget it. We can think of the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, both of which are going on right now. 
horrible things that are happening. But these events aren't happening because the people who experience them are worse sinners than us. They're happening because, as I said, we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. And these tragedies are reminders to us that something is wrong with the world. And there's something far worse coming for those who don't repent. So what about those of us who have repented? Christians, I would remind you that repentance wasn't a one-time thing. I don't know why, but one of my favorite verses is when John the Baptist tells the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is to be a part of our daily lives. Every day our hearts make new idols or return back to old ones. We need to repent daily of our desire for God to live for our kingdoms, our desire for control, our sharp words towards our spouses, our children, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbors. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, you're an unbeliever, first I would let you know what what is repentance. Maybe that's a Christianese word that you don't even really know what it means. It means to turn away. It means to do an about-face and go the other direction, turn from your sin towards God. It's a change of mind, heart, and action. It's agreeing with God about your sin, turning from it to him. And friend, you need to do this. You need to acknowledge God's holiness and your sinfulness. You need to repent. Something eternally worse than dying at the hands of of a terrorist is coming if you don't repent. There's one way to be saved, and it's repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do this, you will be saved. If you want to talk about this, come talk to me after. We don't do altar calls here. Just come talk to me, repent, and believe in your sins, and you will be saved. Repentance is the fruit God is looking for in his people, not merely external religion. And that's the point of the next parable, and it's evidenced by the synagogue's leader, synagogue leader's lack of it in the healing account. So we'll look at these next two paragraphs, Israel's lack of repentance, a parable, and a point proven. So he says this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. There are two characters in one object in the parable. A man, a vine dresser, and a fig tree. I believe the the man represents God the Father, the vine dresser is God the Son, and the fig tree is Israel. Israel is compared to a fig tree all over the Old Testament. In many places. And the point of the parable is that God has been seeking fruit from Israel since her inception. And she's nearing her final chance. We've read the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They seem to usually be fruitless. And Jesus, the vine dresser, is here on earth. And he's going to work hard to help her bear fruit. But if she doesn't, she will be cut down. This is how John the Baptist starts his ministry in speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. He says this in Matthew 3, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Israel was on her last chance. The axe was ready to chop her down, but Jesus would give her one more chance. The Jewish religious way of relating to God was about to be chopped down. If you've studied a little bit of history, Christian history, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. They wouldn't be able to offer sacrifices anymore. It's not that God was completely turning his back on Israel and saying, you have no chance to be saved or come into the kingdom, but your religious way of relating to me is ending. Jesus has fulfilled all that. There's a new way. It's an upside-down way. My Messiah, who's going to die on a cross, repent and believe in him. So the Jews, their way was ending. It was time for them to get on a different bus. We need to be careful, though, not to overinterpret this parable. What I mean is that we can't take it to teach that God the Father is righteous and impatient and he expects a perfect religious performance and, and Jesus is kind and patient and the Father and the Son's character are different. If we divide the character of the Father and Son, we do violence to the Trinity. God the Father and God the Son could both be described as merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We see both the righteousness and the mercy and the patience of God in this parable. The Lord is righteous and patient. He was with Israel. He is with us, the church. We should never presume on his patience, but we can trust that God will save all those who are his. He will not fail to save even one of his sheep. God had sought the fruit of repentance from Israel for hundreds of years, and Jesus is before them. We see in the Gospels, he's doing miracles, he's speaking authoritatively. Would they finally repent? It seems overall they wouldn't. And the other book, Luke wrote, Acts, we see much of Israel, the leaders reject Jesus, and the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. It's the point that Israel was fruitless is, is proven in the heart of a synagogue leader in the next verses. So let's look at verses 10 through 17. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath. Remember, that's a day where no work was supposed to be done. I highlighted this of few weeks ago when I preached. I don't remember which sermon. But remember, they had made hundreds of extra rules up to prevent anyone from breaking the Sabbath. Remember, they couldn't even carry something heavier than a fig, a dried fig, remember? And if they dropped the dried fig and picked it back up, it doubled their load and they were breaking the Sabbath. So there's a woman there who was, who was bent over for 18 years. And Jesus exercises his free and sovereign grace to heal this woman. He calls the woman over. He tells her she's freed from her disability. This is reminding us again that in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, he's come for the lowest, the least, and the left out. And he even lays his hands on her. And immediately, she's able to stand up straight, and she glorified God. 
Imagine being healed of something that significant after having to deal with it for 18 years. Just think about that for a second. 18 years of suffering, of probably praying, begging God, please heal me. 18 years is 6,570 days. Friends and family would be so happy for you. They would have been so happy for her. There would have been such worship of God and gratitude, but wait, not from the ruler of the synagogue. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The synagogue ruler was indignant. That means to feel a violent irritation. He believes Jesus has worked on the Sabbath. He's broken a commandment. He's not practicing religion right. He thinks there's a speck in Jesus' eye when there's a log in his own. But he's a coward. You notice that. He didn't confront Jesus. He turns his anger on the people in his own synagogue. Okay, this is like one of us as your pastors. Something amazing happens in this time of worship. And we turn on you and grill you because we don't like the way someone did their religion. So the leader tells them, come, come on other days of the week to be healed, not on the Sabbath. And Jesus rightly calls him a hypocrite. He and his fellow religious leaders have misunderstood God's desire for his people. God isn't seeking a great religious performance, let alone a perfect religious performance. He's not seeking merely external religion from his people. He's seeking a great repentance that leads to love for him and love for neighbor. And this synagogue leader shows his lack of fruit, by the way. He does not love this woman who is his neighbor. He treats animals better than he treats people. Listen to verses 15 and 16. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? They were allowed to take their animal to water, but Jesus couldn't speak a word, touch this woman and heal her? How does that make sense? It doesn't. It's hypocrisy at its finest. What better day to heal someone than on the Sabbath? One says it like this, the Sabbath is the most fitting day of all to heal because it is a day of rejoicing, freedom, and liberation, pointing back to the Lord's liberating his people from Egypt. There is no better day for the Lord to set free those bound by Satan. And not only was this a fitting day to heal this woman, but she was a Jew. Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. If the religious leaders are willing to water their animals on the Sabbath, why couldn't a Jewish woman be healed on the Sabbath? She could, and she was. And Jesus really gives it to him. What's a really cool, nerdy insight that I appreciate is in verse 15, the word untie, and in verse 16, the word loosed are the same Greek word. Jesus is saying, why, why can the, the animal be untied, but this woman can't be untied? You're hypocrites. 
the synagogue ruler who, who was a microcosm of most of the religious leaders in Israel was a hypocrite. And Jesus proved that point with his question pointing out their inconsistencies. So verse 17 says, As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. This was a big deal. Jesus won the argument handily. Luke uses the word all three times to make the point. All his adversaries were put to shame. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. One says it like this, in an honor and shame culture, this shaming of the opponents is not a minor matter. For those who are shamed are shown to be wrong. The synagogue leader was all about his religion. Heaping religious burdens on people according to Jewish tradition and not according to God's word. His hard heart proved the point that neither he nor many leaders in Israel had borne the fruit of repentance that led to love for God and love for neighbor. What about you in here? All of This is for all of you. Do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you praise God that he doesn't expect a perfect religious performance from you, but the fruit of repentance? Christians in here, do, do you realize that God is more proud of you on a day where your external religion may be poor, poor, but you repent over and over all day than a day when your external religion is great, but there's no repentance? It comes from no heart of love for God and love for neighbor. One says, a mark of spiritual maturity is not sinning less, but repenting faster. I hope you see that in yourself as you've been following Jesus for more and more years. Are there ways that we may be like the synagogue leader? As Christians, do we find that we're adamant about attending the Sunday gathering, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, only to forget about the people that God has placed in our lives? I'm not saying the Sunday gathering is not important. I love the Sunday gathering. I love reading the Bible, and I'm not just saying that because I'm supposed to or because I'm up here. I love memorizing the Bible, but is our religion more important to us than, than caring for the people God has placed in our path like we see in the synagogue leader? A repentant heart is a changed heart, one that is sensitive to love for God and for neighbor. And that leads us to the third point. Despite Israel's lack of repentance, the kingdom would continue to grow. Verses 18 through 21. Jesus compares the kingdom to a mustard seed and leaven. He says, what's the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Mustard seeds are tiny. I looked them up on the internet. You can when you get home. They're teeny tiny, but they grow to be pretty big, a pretty big tree. It's amazing that a seed so tiny can grow into such a big tree, even big enough for birds to nest in. The point here is that the Jews thought the Messiah would bring the kingdom with apocalyptic power. That it would be a huge, not a seed, it would be this huge thing. But God's plan is that it would have a small start. It would be easily missed at first but it would grow. That's an upside-down way to usher in a kingdom, if you ask me. Then he compares the kingdom to leaven. The point is similar in this metaphor with the key word being hid. 
A woman hid the leaven in three measures of flour. I read somewhere and then I couldn't find it. That's a lot of flour. I wanted to tell you how much. Three bushels. It's like a whole, it's like feeding all of you. That much flour. But it wasn't an ostentatious display of leaven sprinkling. Look at me, I'm sprinkling leaven. It was hidden. It was done discreetly. And yet the leaven would spread through the whole lump. The point of both metaphors is this. The upside-down kingdom started small, and it was easy to miss, and still sometimes is. But it will continue to grow and to spread, and someday it will come with apocalyptic power, and it will spread through the whole earth. The kingdom of God will come. It will be the kingdom of earth. That The gospel will have spread everywhere. We will be in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness and justice and joy reign. God reminds us in Psalm 46 to be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. The kingdom will grow and spread according to God's will and God's timing. Our call, among other things, is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and to call other people to join God's kingdom through repentance and faith. We don't need to be discouraged when God's kingdom seems to be growing slowly or the people that we really love seem to be missing it. We should never cease to pray for them and for the growth of the kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. The kingdom will continue to grow through local churches and through God's people as we proclaim the gospel where we live, work, learn, and play. And someday... We've seen it in previous chapters in Luke recently. Someday Jesus is coming back, and he's bringing the fullness of the kingdom with him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Some of us will do that joyfully and worshipfully and tearfully, and some will do that grudgingly and in much fear. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are prone to wander back to ourselves and to our religious performance. The Bible, the Bible all over and in this passage calls you to briefly look at yourself. Are you bearing fruit? Even itty, itty bit. Take a moment to look at yourself, but then, brothers and sisters, and those of you who aren't in Christ yet, I commend you to look to Christ. He fulfilled perfect obedience for us. He obeyed personally, perfectly, and perpetually. And then he bore the wrath of God against our sin. He died. He rose three days later. He ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit. And we can be saved when we believe in him. We look to him. Entrance into his kingdom starts with repentance and faith and continues with the same. Repentant hearts are repenting hearts. And if you're bearing that fruit, even imperfectly, you can trust that you will never experience the suffering of eternal separation from God. One more time, if you're in here and you haven't repented of your sins, don't wait until it's too late. Kid, the kids are in here again with us this morning. I remember, I, I grew up like you, sitting in these pews like you, saying, I'll take it more seriously when I'm John's age. Like, he seems to be taking it seriously, I'll wait till then. Kids, don't wait. Parents, keep sharing the gospel with your kids. Teach them what it means to repent and believe in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to assume 
We don't need to be like those who assume that when bad things happen to people, they must be worse sinners than us. We don't need to be like the synagogue ruler who was so focused on his religion that he missed the point. As we go into the world with the message of the gospel, remember the message isn't, come be good with us. Come on, come modify your behavior with us. Let's spray perfume on our dead corpses. The message is, come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you will be forgiven and saved. Because the upside-down kingdom of God is a kingdom of repentance, not religion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christ. We treasure him. We worship him. He's Lord. He's Savior. We acknowledge that our external religion can only come from a heart made new, a heart that's repented and believed, and we praise you that you've granted that to us by the Holy Spirit. I pray that this church as a whole and us as individuals would continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I pray, Lord, that you would be drawing lost people to yourself even now. I pray that they would acknowledge that you are holy and loving and their sin has separated them from you, but you have sent Christ the way to be saved. We praise you, Lord, that, that our, our salvation uh, isn't dictated on our religious performance, uh, but the Holy Spirit working in us, a love for you and a love for neighbor. We, we love you, Lord. We love you, and we praise you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.